Henry, hit the theme song. What episode is this? Episode 7, Henry. Too many episodes. Too many episodes. This is actually the last episode we were filming for the season? For the, yeah, for the first season? For the first semester. We're gonna, we're gonna record again next semester. Well, this will be the last episode for 2018. Alright, so Henry, what are we talking about today? So, uh, today, we're going to be talking about dark matter and dark energy. How cool is that? Okay, so dark matter and dark energy are things that most people don't know anything about. Uh, most people think that it's just something that you, can, that you don't see. Uh, actually, turns out that it isn't just something you don't see. It's also something we don't even know exists, but we do know it exists. Now, you want to go a bit more in depth on that one? <laughs> Could you have been more vague? <laughs> Um, Actually, I could have been more vague, but it turns out it's just an area of science that is vague by default. It's very vague, yes. I guess we could start with dark matter, just because dark energy. Uh, so I actually did this, this interview with an astronomer that we're going to have later. Basically, uh, what he said was um, dark matter is probably going to be solved within our lifetime. It's a fairly simple mystery. Dark energy is really, really... Uh, breaking physics right now. Um, so we can start with dark matter just because it's comparatively simple. Um, dark comparatively. Comparatively. <laughs> um, basically, um, in the late 90s, there was a bunch of computer simulations done by a few different research teams. All they did was they summed all of the mass and therefore gravity in a bunch of galaxies and they tried to analyze the spin of those galaxies, tried to understand the orbits of the different stars in that galaxy. And what they determined is in basically every single galaxy, there is not enough gravity within that galaxy to hold it together. Basically, galaxies all across the universe should just be flying apart. Um, but they're not, obviously. They're staying together. So the idea is that there is some sort of, people say dark matter, um, dark gravity maybe, that is uh, keeping all of these stars in these galaxies and prevents them from flying apart like they should based on the physics that we know. Um, and there's a few competing ideas that would explain dark matter. Um, two very good acronyms that I love. <laughs> um, there's WIMPs and MACHOs. WIMPs is weakly interacting massive particles. Basically something like uh, neutrinos, some other um, weakly interacting, so it doesn't interact with electromagnetic radiation, any of the four forces, but it's like a big particle that would somehow explain all of this gravity that we don't see. Or there's mach machos, which is massive compact halo objects. I guess they just ignored the A, or the A is part of massive. I don't really know. Um, basically, it's the idea that there's maybe primordial black holes, or there's white dwarves, or there's, there's, there's just something in the halo of most galaxies that we cannot directly observe, but has mass. A long story short, we know that there's something there. We just don't know exactly what it is, so. So if they were black holes, because the gravitation, the, like, it has so much gravitational pull on other objects, wouldn't we be able to detect, like, concentrated areas where objects are moving towards a point? Yes. So you could see that there was objects moving towards that if there was a bunch of stuff around. Like with the supermassive black holes at the center of the galaxy, it's really, really easy to see that there's a black hole there because there's so many stars whipping around. But in fact, 
most black holes in the universe we think we cannot see whatsoever simply because they're just floating in space next to nothing like light years of space where there's nothing around uh, the only way that we could maybe see them is if we're staring at a, a particular star and we see like a gravitational lens like we see the black hole pass in front of the star and bend its light which is really rare a possible thing i think we it's the second type the machos is instead there's some sort of stars that mm. their light which they emit isn't instantly we're really looking at just by way of the wavelengths that it's using mm, so like brown dwarves red dwarves something of that nature um but based on all the calculations that astrophysicists have done you know in terms of stellar lifespan supernova remnants we don't expect there to be a huge amount of brown dwarfs for example so it is it's still a mystery uh i think it's time to see if there's any questions with live studio audience The question is, does my co-host, Henry Manowski, wear NASA socks for every recording? Ever since the answer I, is, uh, he wears them every single day. Yeah. Ever since I bought them at Urban, yes. <laughs> um, like asking dumb. You always ask them dumb. I'm so confused by literally everything that was emitted from both of your mouths, so I'm going to have to keep it going. Okay, Mi Micah, I'll, 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 I'll reiterate it, okay? So, we use computers, right? Yeah. We know there's a certain amount of stuff. Okay. But we can only see like some of the stuff. Okay, why is it hiding from us? It's not hiding, we just can't even detect it. What if someone hid it from us? I'm looking at you, Russia. Think about it, okay? An entire <laughs> range of particles concealed from our vision by a hostile foreign force. It could be. So, now on to our second topic of conversation. Another dark term, uh, dark energy. Hmm. Big dark. Oh. <laughs> that was Keep that in. Keep that in. Can we keep that in? No, we can't keep that <laughs> in. No. Too many people are going to get it. <laughs> dark energy. What is dark energy, Henry? So, dark energy, like I was saying earlier, uh, it's a I lot think in order more... to explain dark energy, we're probably going to talk about red and blue shift first, right? Uh, well, we don't really. That sort of goes into like how they experimentally proved it, which like isn't really that we might. Not well, I said the word was doing now. Yeah, whatever. Okay, so um, blue and red shifting is sort of like the Doppler effect. Should I explain the Doppler effect? Yeah, I don't know. Can I explain the Doppler effect? Micah, you may absolutely not explain the Doppler effect. Doppler <laughs> effect. The Doppler effect. Something that happens with sound waves, because mm -hmm. sound, uh, as we know, is just a compression of air. Because air is a compression, if you are moving relative to something else as you're compressing it, it changes, like eventually how much it's compressed by, or at least what you detect like the it as. Frequency. Yeah, and that affects that affects the frequency, mm -hmm. which uh, just changes the way it sounds. So if you're making a certain sound, if you're moving while you're making that sound, someone who's hearing that will hear it in a different tone. It's not noticeable until you start going really fast. So obviously when you hear, for example, an ambulance coming by or a fire truck, it sounds higher pitch as it's coming towards you and then lower pitch as it's leaving you. And of course, the same thing happens with light we have discovered when things move really, really fast. Mm -hmm. It's a very similar effect, but for light. So you said the words red and blue shift. Uh, and red is on the 
I gotta make sure I get this right in my head I always mix it up longer wavelength light on the visible spectrum blue is shorter wavelength higher frequency so when people say red and blue shift it's basically the Doppler effect but for light so if you have an object moving very quickly towards us uh, that means that it's going to be blue shifted and it's if it's moving away it's going to be red shifted and why this is relevant and relevant to uh, dark energy is because uh, in the late 90s, I think it was 1998, there were two teams of astronomers uh, who were looking into this sort of grand cosmological question, which was uh, basically astronomers were trying to determine uh, if the initial energy imbued in the universe by the Big Bang was sufficient to uh, allow the universe to expand forever or expand to a point and then all the gravity, all the galaxies pull everything together, collapse it into a black hole again. That's very circular and nice because then you don't have to explain what happened before the Big Bang because then it's just, it's oscillating. Um, and so two teams of astronomers were trying to determine which one of uh, those scenarios it was. And it turned out it's a third scenario, which is that um, not only was there this initial energy imbued into the universe by the Big Bang that caused an expansion, but for some reason that expansion is accelerating, which is really weird. Um, and we've later determined that it's based on the volume of space. So as the volume of space occupied by something goes up, the amount of this weird outward radiative pressure increases. Um, and we don't know what that is at all. Um, it's not like a vacuum pressure that we can account for in any theory that we know of right now. Um, and nobody really has a good um, experimentally provable, falsifiable theory for what it could be. Um, so that's this like way worse idea. It's, it's not like we're... Um, it's not like something's potentially hidden from us that we just can't see. It's like this physics-breaking effect that we don't understand at all so whoever solves that's going to win like five Nobel prizes or something crazy oh easily they'll be the next big name in science mm -hmm. alongside newton and galileo and einstein mm -hmm. without a doubt someone who can prove like why the size of the universe is the size of the universe yeah or like how the size of the universe is changing that'd be huge isn't it always expanding yeah that is what we but the expansion is accelerating, expansion which doesn't. Yeah, it, it's always growing, but it's also always growing faster than it was before. Which makes no sense because there's like gravity in the universe, there's galaxies and stuff. So, so if anything, it should be slowing down. Um, so the uh, Micah, do you have any questions? You always have good questions. Um, I've honestly been entirely bamboozled by everything you all said. So. Listen, Micah, Micah, I'm gonna break it down for you, okay? Break it down for me. All right, so there's stuff in the universe, right? Got it. We can tell how fast that stuff's moving towards us or away from us, right? True. And knowing that, we can figure out how much that stuff's moving away from itself. What? Right. Yeah. Using numbers and stuff. Of course. Physics. Uh-huh. The stuff that my kind of people do. So we can tell that stuff is either going to be getting closer to each other at one point, mm. it'll stay the same, right? Yeah. That's what we think it'll do. Right. So we look at it a bunch. And we see the numbers. And you know what it does? What, what Neither it? one. Turns out all that stuff, instead of getting closer or staying the same, it's actually just getting farther. And every time it gets farther from itself, it gets farther faster than it was before. 
So it's just always speeding up. Yeah. What happens when it hits terminal velocity? Terminal velocity? That's not the concept that applies. You see, we don't know. Okay. And it, it, as far as we know, it just gets faster and faster and faster forever, and we don't know why. One interesting consequence of this is uh, if dark energy continues to be a thing, universe keeps accelerating faster and faster, it's going to mean that at some point in, in the distant future, billions of years, maybe even trillions of years, it, it depends, uh, all of the galaxies that we can see in the sky are going to go away. They're going to be too far away for us. They're going to be outside our light cone. We won't okay. be able to see them. You know what this reminds me of? Y'all see the major motion picture uh, click? Adam Sandler? No? no? Oh, yeah, I've seen it. Okay, so you know what happens is he's got that... He goes to the Beyond section of Bed Bath & Beyond, right? Oh, my God. And he gets God. a remote that speeds up time so he can uh, you know, zoom through all the parts of his life he doesn't want to see, right? So, like, his kid's soccer game or, like, when he has to massage his wife and things of that nature, right? But then what happens is it starts zooming itself on command. Mm. That's what our universe is doing. It's zooming <laughs> too fast. We have to slow it down. We gotta slow it down. We, okay, how? We, uh, I have we an go. idea. <laughs> we need to build a space wall. The Martians, we'll make the Martians pay for all of it. I'm serious, like, what happens when everything gets so fast and exceeds the speed of light so we can't see anything anymore? You see, in theory, it won't get fast with speed of light, right? Well, well there's no terminal yeah. velocity. It's, it's not like, so if the edge of the universe is expanding, right, Einstein says that no information can travel faster than the speed of light. So if one end of the universe is traveling at one speed and the other is moving at another speed, it's not. It wouldn't break the laws of physics for their relative velocity to be over the speed of light, because it's not like information is traveling between the two points. It's the same thing as if. What is information like? Like literally, what is? Like a particle. Is anything not information? If it's not light. Well, I don't know how to answer that question. Well, you can call information. Like, okay, so say you have an object in space, and it doesn't emit light, it just exists, and it's a thing. But once you have light reflect off that, the information is what's reflecting back to you. So you can see that object now, and you have the information of what it is, and then it's there. Right, so basically everything will exist, it just won't, we just won't have any signifiers of its existence. And that's existence. why it's called dark energy and dark matter, because it's oh. not emitting light, and we can't see it, and it's not reflecting light either. Whoa. Dude. I understand. dark. So, so if we sort of take this concept even further, once all of the galaxies are beyond our sort of visual horizon, then at a certain point, you know, the other side of the galaxy will be out of our visual horizon. The galaxy will be ripped apart. Solar systems will be ripped apart. Stars, atoms. Eventually, the entire universe is just going to be completely homogeneous. Just a bunch of very, very distant particles. And they'll be... Yeah. Will no that energy left. Our very own Earth? Yeah, I'll have we'll, everything. We'll just be spaghetti. I mean, the, actually, the Earth would be devoured by the sun like way, way before any of this. Oh, uh, okay. So. We have to build a wall around the sun. <laughs> well, we actually discussed that that possibility before in a previous episode of the podcast. That's called a Dyson sphere. 
<laughs> the key is you build it at night. <laughs> so. All right, so what a great conversation we've had so far. We are now going to listen to an interview that Henry had conducted earlier uh, today. Earlier yesterday. Earlier today. Uh, with uh, Dr. David Halpin. Good first name. I must agree, it is a very wonderful first name. You guys actually discussed the same thing we just talked about, dark matter, dark energy. Hopefully, you, the other person listening to this podcast, have learned enough to be able to understand this interview. Hopefully. So, the first question that somebody from CSI uh, wanted to have answered by you, and obviously you're, you're not an expert in like all different fields of astrophysics, no. <laughs> um, but do you think that dark matter, dark, dark, matter, dark matter or dark energy will be solved in our lifetime? I think dark energy is a problem, but dark matter, I'm pretty confident will be. You know, we don't know what these things are, but we measure their properties with ever-increasing precision. And so we can use them in building models of the universe. In dark matter, we've been systematically looking in different ways for whether they're, macro, whether they're macroscopic objects like, you know, primordial black holes or... Yeah, so, so we pretty much eliminated machos, although you can dream up scenarios of primordial black holes that, that would work. Um, and with WIMPs, which is these weak, weakly interacting massive particles, there are a number of experiments going on around the world that are constantly pushing the limits down, 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 down on their properties, you know, narrowing the window of what kind of mass momentum things they can have. So there's an obvious road forward in that, and I guess I would imagine my lifetime, but your lifetime, um, will either squeeze the parameter space down to zero, and so some really wacky idea like my colleague Jerry Ostreicher here of uh, axions of extremely low energy with the broiling wavelengths of like kiloparsecs um, has to be taken seriously. Um, but I'm that that I'm I would be surprised if that's not solved a solved problem in the next twenty or thirty years. Dark energy is much more problematic. Um, you know, some of us keep hoping it'll just go away. <laughs> I had a good idea to make it go away, but it didn't make it go away, unfortunately. <laughs> so um, it looks like it's here to stay, and there are you know, four or five different ways of measuring it, and all of them are consistent with each other, so it's something we have to understand. But there, I think, observationally, we don't even know what to do, and theoretically, I don't think we're close to a solution to the problem. So that's a bigger mystery that might take longer to solve. Yeah, I mean, like we were talking about whims and machos for dark matter. I don't even know what the equivalent idea to solve dark energy is. It's like, so there's an outward pressure. That's it. Like, it doesn't seem like we can really even describe. Well, it acts as though it's a pressure or anti-gravity that's proportional to the volume of space available. So when the universe is small, there's not very much space, so there's not very much dark energy. So the universe is expanding because of the initial inflation or whatever, um, but it's slowing down because of the mutual gravitation of everything it contains. 
it's like throwing something up in the air. You know, it slows down, stops, turns around, falls back. Uh, and so that's what's going on in the early universe 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6 billion years ago. And, but then, by that time, the universe has gotten so big, there's enough space that dark energy starts to come into play, and it just increases. So therefore, it accelerates the expansion of space, and that just makes more space, and that accelerates it greater, so it, it runs away, ultimately, maybe, uh, if that's what happens. If it, it could, it could result from the consequence of us being embedded in a higher dimensional multiverse. Uh, it could just be something we don't understand about space-time itself. Um, but again, I think there, there are no you know, obvious theoretical paths and no obvious observational paths other than you know, reducing the uncertainties in its measured parameters. And they're pretty small already, and it's really hard for me to believe that going from 2% uncertainties to half a percent uncertainty is going to reveal something remarkable. So I think that's a tough nut to crack. So, so what was it like when that, was, that discovery was first made, that the expansion of the universe is accelerating? Because I don't know what year in particular, but I, I remember talking to my uncle who went to Columbia, and he was saying he took a bunch of physics classes in the early 90s where it was like, Astrophysics is solved, like cosmology is mm -hmm. fine, and then all of a sudden cosmology just like broke in the, I don't know, mid to late 90s. Yeah, 1998. So there were two teams, uh, both set out to measure the expansion rate of the universe because the three options available at that time were the universe expands to a finite maximum size and then turns around and collapses again. That's philosophically attractive to some people because then you don't have to say where it came from because it could just be oscillating forever. Right? Um, it could just have exactly the right critical amount of mass such that it expands forever, but in an ever-slowing space and it coasts pace and it coasts to a stop and infinity. Um, that's the equivalent of you know firing something off the earth at exactly the space velocity, escape velocity, so it just coasts to a stop at infinity. Uh, or it could have sufficient expansion energy that it expands forever and doesn't slow to, slow to a stop. And that's the equivalent of launching something out of the solar system, right? It just leaves. Um, so those were the three options. And the idea of these two big teams in the 90s was to once and for all determine which of those three options it was. And simultaneously, in 1998, both teams came to the conclusion that it wasn't any of those three. It was a fourth possibility, and that is the acceleration is, expand, is accelerating. So that was, uh, yeah, a big surprise. And <coughs> as with any such surprise, there was a lot of skepticism initially. Um, you always, you know, publish your result when you get to three sigma or something, and so people wanted more data, but people came up with various ideas. I had an idea uh, that that might explain the uh, explain it away. But as these ideas were tried one after the other, they all failed. And as the data kept accumulating, it went to four sigma, five sigma, six sigma, seven sigma, eight sigma, it became just undeniable uh, that it was there. And that's the state we're in. We've been stuck in that state for 20 years now. Just waiting for some really smart person to win a Nobel Prize? Maybe it'll be a smart person. Maybe it'll be an a observational discovery, although the path to that is not obvious at all. Um, we do know, and I guess you could call this a theoretical clue, we do know that general relativity, which is our 
theory for things on large scales in space and time. And quantum mechanics, our theory of how subatomic particles work, are fundamentally incompatible with each other. And this incompatibility is irrelevant in the universe today, largely, but in the first nanosecond of the universe, they're not irrelevant because space-time has to be quantized, and space-time is not quant quantizable in relativity. And so it could be that the ultimate reconciliation of these two models, and we have to always remember they're models of the universe, right? They're not the universe, they're models of the universe. These two very successful models, which have passed lots and lots of tests, but are fundamentally incompatible, maybe the solution to that problem will make the idea of dark energy fall out. But I'm not holding my breath. Well, so the second question we have, and we're sort of jumping all over the place here. It's fine. Uh, the second question we have maybe is a sort of solution. So what's your view on string theory? I don't know if that is a solution to that problem. I, I know way too little about string theory. All I know is like a five-minute YouTube video from Michio Kaku, but like, what's, what's your take on it? Well, first of all, I don't know any more about string theory than you do, um, except my mathematician colleagues tell me it's extremely elegant and exciting mathematics that connects areas of mathematics which people didn't realize were connected before. So mathematicians are very excited about it. I sort of tend towards the view of one of my colleagues here who wrote a book on string theory, the title of which was, It's Not Even Wrong. <laughs> and that's because there is, at least in one interpretation, one number that string theory predicts, and that number is wrong by 120 orders of magnitude. It's to do with the energy density of the vacuum. Um, so that's what he meant by it's not even wrong. My view is that string theory is not a scientific theory. A scientific theory, I'm an extreme Popperian. I believe a scientific theory must be posed in a way such that it's falsifiable. A lot of debate about this amongst philosophers of science, and I'm not a philosopher of science, but I really like that definition of science because I think it's what's allowed us to move forward in the last 400 years. So you pose a prospect of the way nature her, uh, works, and then you must do so in a way that it's possible, in principle, if not at that day practical, to prove it incorrect. And that's not true of string theory. Depending on which versions, which flavors you have, there are 10 to the 500 different universes you could construct, and that's not a falsifiable hypothesis. There are, as yet, no predictions of any observational quantity, whether in particle physics or in in uh, cosmology that allows one to falsify string theory. And so that's why, in my view, it's not a scientific theory. It doesn't mean it couldn't become one. It doesn't mean someone couldn't come up with a way to do this. But it is true that 20 years ago, all the smart young theoretical physicists were doing string theory, and fewer of them are doing it today. And I think that's a, that says something. So, so we were sort of talking about this in, in the pre-interview. And this, this might be fun, but um, Elon Musk, SpaceX, do you have any opinions? Uh, you're not an aerospace engineer, but do you have any no. view on that? Well, <coughs> I think the most important point that needs to be made, which 99.9% .9 of the public doesn't know, is that this 
SpaceX and Blue Origin and all the others have not made the progress that they have on using private capital. It's public money. It's NASA money. NASA's paid billions of dollars into this. Now, I'm okay with that. I don't have a problem with that. But I think it's a misapprehension on the part of most people that here we have this big sluggish government bureaucracy and they can't manage to put people on the moon 50 years after they did it the first time. Um, but then we have this nimble, bright you know, uh, company that can, that can do these things. And, and it's, it's all shows what the private sector can do. It has nothing to do with the private sector. It's all been public money. Now, what they've accomplished is extremely impressive. When you watch one of those rockets take off and the first stage come back and land on the platform, that's really impressive. It's technologically extremely impressive. And they continue to make progress. Uh, they, like NASA back in the 1950s, you know, they blew up about half of them the first time, and then it was 10%, and now it's down to a very low failure rate. Um, and so I think they're doing extremely well. Still using public money, I would note. Um, but eventually it could well be the case that it becomes a private sector operation that doesn't rely exclusively on government money. It is a little bit embarrassing that we build this $100 billion space station and don't have any way to get astronauts to and from it. Um, so I think uh, this is a perfectly viable alternative to, uh, to renting Russian uh, spacecraft. And I think the plan is in the next couple of years that they'll have be able to send crew back and forth with Falcon heavy lift rockets. So I think it's great. <laughs> I have no problem with it at all, except for the notion that it's an entirely private sector enterprise because it's not. What about uh, Elon? Well, he's an interesting character, obviously. Uh, he has big ideas, which is great. I think that's not always necessarily the person you want running multi-billion dollar companies. Um, you know, the Tesla is a, is a great achievement, but when you make predictions about how many you can produce that are off by orders of magnitude, that's not very impressive. It does require sort of calm, rational people to uh, run large operations, and I don't think that's calm is not a uh, adjective that's usually applied to Elon Musk. So I think he is to be uh, lauded for his vision and for at least those two uh, technical achievements. And the battery storage uh, stuff is interesting too, although that's a little bit overhyped. But in terms of uh, running large-scale operations, I think he probably leaves something to be desired as was demonstrated in the last few months when he got sanctioned by the Securities and Exchange Commission. Um, what's your opinion of the work being done at SETI? And just like more broadly, um, astronomers who are looking into aliens, do you think that's sort of viable? I don't know. So <laughs> SETI is now 58 years old. Uh, and they, of course, have not found anything yet. This, to me, is not terribly surprising. Um, I like, I mean, well, I should turn the question around and ask you. When I ask my students, my college-age students, whether or not, what, what would, how would it change their worldview if life, and I'm talking about even bacteria, were discovered in some other part of the universe, 
they shrug their shoulders and don't think it's a big deal. I think it would be the most important discovery in the history of the human race. Um, so I first have a disconnect with the younger generation there. Um, SETI was initially taking telescope time and pointing at a bunch of stars. That was the Frank Drake project in 1960, Project Ozma. Subsequent to that, much of the SETI work has, number one, been privately funded, and number two, used what we call commensal observing. That is, uh, someone can be, assuming you don't know where the signals are coming from, which of course we don't, then you could look anywhere in the sky. And so an astronomer using a radio telescope pointed in some direction of the sky, there's no reason you can't take a spigot on that data, take it off and analyze it for narrowband or other characteristics of what you'd consider an intelligent signal. Um, and so that's great, because it doesn't cost anything. It doesn't, doesn't tie up a telescope that would otherwise be doing interesting science. It's just using the same data for two different purposes, which seems perfectly reasonable. Uh, and especially given that it's mostly privately funded now uh, by, by uh, Yuri Milner, this Russian oligarch, um, that's, that's great. I think it's fine. My guess is that if we were to find an extraterrestrial signal, that it will happen serendipitously, that it will happen by chance, not as part of a targeted effort. Um, simply because the volume of parameter space one would have to search is so huge uh, that it's more likely one will stumble across it than deliberately find it. So I'll give you an example. I did a big survey of the whole northern sky with the very large array, which was 30 times more sensitive and 30 times higher angular resolution than any previous survey, so it opened up lots of possibilities. And 99.9% .9 of the objects in the survey are extragalactic objects, quasars, blazars, um, galaxy clusters, active galactic nuclei, quasars. Um, but a few of the objects, and I really mean like 50 out of a million, uh, are nearby stars. The sun produces radio waves. All stars produce radio waves. They're really, really, really faint. So you can only see relatively nearby stars. And their degree of radio emission is a consequence of the sunspot cycle and of the magnetic activity on the surface of the sun, or the surface of the star. And that magnetic activity drives not only radio emission, but it also drives X-ray emission. And so we did a survey. They did this big survey, and we matched them up with nearby stars. And there's an extremely tight correlation between the amount of radio emission a star produces and the amount of X-ray emission a star produces, because they're both produced by the same thing, these erupting magnetic fields on the surface. And so we had, I forget what it was, 30 or 40 stars that we had detected, and most of them were also detected in X-rays. And so we could plot this beautiful tight correlation, X-ray flux versus radio flux. And of the, let's say there were 40 stars, one was bright in the radio and had no X-rays at all. Well, that's, of course, what you'd expect from an extraterrestrial civilization, right? Because <laughs> extraterrestrial civilizations produce radio waves, but they don't produce a lot of x-rays. They blast into space, at least we don't. Um, so you can be sure that I went back to the original data and checked whether or not the signal was narrowband or a broadband signal like you'd expect from a natural phenomenon. And needless to say, since you didn't read about it on the front page of the New York Times, it was a broadband signal, and it was just a weird star, and we still don't know why that star is like that. But I think that kind of... Uh, 
stumbling upon something is, is more likely to yield signals. Now, recently, and coming forward in the next decade, certainly, not looking for t intelligence, but just looking for life, we have a real prospect of getting somewhere because JWST, the follow-on to the Hubble Space Telescope, uh, will be able to examine the chemical composition of the atmospheres of planets around other stars. And there are a number of ways one could imagine uh, finding indications for life. On our planet, for example, our atmosphere is 20% oxygen. Oxygen is highly reactive. And so that's a signature of a non-equilibrium chemical process, which we happen to call life, uh, that keeps the oxygen, the atmosphere oxygenated. No other planet in the solar system, no other planet we know of has an oxygen-rich atmosphere like ours. Uh, or we could even detect, you know, organic molecules, you know, chlorophyll or something like that in the atmosphere or the analogous uh, chemical. Well, <laughs> <or> <laughs> that would be intelligent life. But no, I'm just talking about, I'm just looking for bacteria. I, I'd be happy with bacteria. I don't need intelligent life. Um, so I think there's a real prospect for progress there. I would not want to put odds on the prospect. Uh, the progress on the prospect of extraterrestrial intelligence signals, but I do think um, the prospects for finding life uh, the, in the next 30 years is, is, well, I don't know what it is because we only have one example, right? Uh, but since the raw materials for life are in every protoplanetary nebula, I mean, every single place where stars are forming and planetary systems are forming are the places where there's rich assemblages of already 200 organic molecules, which are the basic building blocks of life. Whether it, the life looks like us or not, it's highly likely to be based on carbon, just because carbon is the fourth most abundant element, and other elements that can make double and triple bonds and therefore complex molecules are rarer by thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands. So it's highly likely to be based on carbon. It doesn't have to look anything like us. It doesn't have to have DNA. It doesn't have to do. Doesn't have to be based on the same amino acids. We just use twenty amino acids. There's hundreds of amino acids. So there's lots of possibilities. But it's likely to be based on carbon. And when we look in these flights of planetary formation, uh, they, the clouds are just suffused with organic carbon-based molecules. Secondly, we know that on Earth, that life emerged in sufficient quantity to be a marker in the geologic record. Uh, within about 5% of the lifetime of our star. So the raw materials are everywhere, and it happened really quick in the one instance we know of where the conditions were reasonable. Right? So given several hundred billion planets in the galaxy and a few hundred billion galaxies in the observable universe, the odds seem pretty good. But when you only have one, you can't make a statistical statement. Uh, nonetheless, we'll be able to do a systematic search for signs of life on other planets in the next decade, which is an exciting prospect. Whether we find signals from intelligent beings, that seems to me somewhat less likely. So you think we could solve the Fermi paradox like 30 years, 40 years? I don't think the, I don't, I don't see it, the Fermi paradox as a paradox. Look, you can, you can show that the biggest unknown, apart from whether life exists only on Earth or, every, or, you know, or not, it exists only on Earth, and there's no point in doing anything, right? But so you assume it doesn't only exist on Earth. Um, you can show that the biggest uncertainty is the lifetime 
of an intelligent communicating civilization. Because we know what stars can host habitable planets. We know now, we didn't used to, but we now know how many planets there are. We know how many are in a reasonable environmental zone to host complex organic molecules. Um, we don't know how often life emerges, but let's say it's not zero. As long as it's not zero, then it's gonna, this is going to be all be a big number because you're multiplying by hundreds of billions just in our galaxy. Um, we know how long intelligence took to develop on Earth, about half the lifetime of our star, or a little less than half. Um, but the biggest uncertainty is how long do we maintain an intelligent communicating civilization? So if the answer to that question is a few hundred years, because by the time you get to communicate across interstellar distances, you also understand nuclear energy, so you can blow yourself up. You also have a huge demand for energy, so you can wreck your planet. I mean, this, you can, all these things are sort of co-requisites, right? So if the lifetime is a few hundred years, then we should be the only civilization in the galaxy. If, on the other hand, that lifetime is, I don't know, pick a number. A typical species lives five million years. That's just a rough estimate from the fossil record that species come and go on a time scale of millions, not hundreds of millions and not weeks, but, you know, millions of years. So let's say a million years. Well, then there's a thousand civilizations in the galaxy, or maybe more, and the necessary corollary of that is we are the dumbest, because if the average lifetime is a million years, then the average civilization has been around 500,000 years, and we've been around 50 years as a civilization able to communicate across interstellar distances. So by definition, we are the most primitive. So... It's fun to watch ant colonies, but we don't learn a lot of quantum mechanics from ants, right? <laughs> Why would a civilization not take the approach that, oh, it's like an ant colony. Let's see what happens to them. Maybe they'll blow themselves up. Maybe they won't blow themselves up. And so that's called the zoo hypothesis. So uh, and why, why, what are they going to learn? I mean, the same 92 elements make up the whole universe. So they're not coming here for the platinum, right? Um, they're not coming here for to learn something new. And... You know, the first signals they get are broadcasts of I Love Lucy, and they might think, well, maybe I don't want to go there. You know? <laughs> so, so I think there is no Fermi paradox because it is necessarily true that if there are other intelligent civilizations, they're vastly more advanced than we are. So and care. why would you care? I mean, suppose we found bacteria on a planetary system 100 light years away. I mean... I'd get very excited. My students wouldn't get excited, but whatever. Some people get excited. But what are we going to do? I mean, who cares, right? <laughs> and we're sort of at the level of bacteria compared to a civilization that's a million years in advance of us. I never really thought of it that way. Makes sense. Um, so we just have like a few questions left. So obviously you're, you're also a professor here. So do you have a favorite class to teach? Well, like CSI members, like, <laughs> what should they take? Oh, that's a different question. Um, well, there's a class not that I teach, but uh, that Caleb Scharf has taught on, I forget what it's called exactly, but it's about exploring the solar system and solar systems beyond. Um, and he taught that, la not this year, but last year, or the year before, I can't remember. Anyway, it was very popular. It seemed, it seemed like a good class because it had a little bit of the space technology, a little bit of 
biology, you know, what we're looking for life or whatever, uh, and just some of the history of space exploration and things like that. So that, that, I think he's, I don't remember if he's teaching it in the spring or not. I can't remember, but that was a, that was a good one. Uh, I spend most of my time, in fact, virtually now, all of my time teaching or attempting to teach science to non-science majors, the people who are going to end up as congressmen and judges and stuff like that, who I think need to learn science really, really badly. <laughs> so that's where I am devoting my efforts these days. And so I don't know how many non-science members you have of the CSI, but it's probably small, right? Um, do you have any stories, maybe from your time here at Columbia, maybe from way earlier in your career, that sort of stick out in your mind that you want to tell people about? I have so many stories. Well, first of all, I've been here, this is my 42nd year, so there wasn't a lot of life before I got to Columbia. Um, I, I started out, however, and this might be of interest, uh, as a theater major and somehow ended up as an astrophysicist. Um, I do, however, attribute about 70% of my success in my career to my theater courses, not to my partial differential equations courses, at which I wasn't very good. Um, and so I guess a message to your listeners is that you should take full advantage of the fact that you're in this university which has a strong liberal arts program because to be a successful scientist or engineer you need to be able to write persuasive effective proposals because otherwise you don't have any money to do anything with and when you're a theater major you have to write effective persuasive papers or you get low grades um, when you become a scientist or an engineer you will find that many of your colleagues are not particularly good in oral communication, giving talks, giving speeches, giving classes, etc. And yet, the way to become successful in a scientific or engineering career is to be invited to give colloquia at other universities, to be invited to international meetings, to give talks. And if you're good at that, since people usually prefer to hear good talks than bad talks, they invite you a lot. And then it turns out, gee, all those people you're talking to happen to be the people who review your proposals for funding. And so knowing how to stand up and give an engaging, entertaining, and thought-provoking lecture uh, turns out to be extremely important and a skill that's virtually never taught in science and engineering classes. Uh, so at the moment, I'm actually involved with developing a brand new engineering school in the United Kingdom, which is designed around granting liberal engineering degrees. So, you know, here in C's, you take a couple of the core curriculum courses, and you don't have to admit this, but I know it's just like, all right, these are two things, another, another hurdle I have to jump, let's tick the box and get through them. Um, we didn't want to do that. So how do you integrate these liberal arts skills with an engineering education? So I came up with what I call the wandering minstrel model, since it's in England. Um, and what happens is the courses are taught in the style of the university I helped found in Canada of one course at a time. So you take four courses in a term, but you take them in series rather than in parallel. And so all you do 24-7 is work on one course for a month, and then you work on another course. Uh, it's all project-based, so you don't stand there and listen to people lecture at you. You have a project, 
and you get tutorials and lectures and stuff thrown in, but you and four other people, they're teams of five, five teams of five in each class, 25 people per class, you're working on a project. But the Wandering Mistral comes in like this. Uh, you've got a set of faculty who are humanities and social science faculty, and they wander into your classroom while you're working on your project, and they interrupt you, and they say, all right, put down the soldering irons today. You know, we're going we're gonna to talk about the uh, ethical implications of this project you're working on. Or we're going to talk about the environmental impact of this project you're working on. Or we're going to talk about the financing. How, would, how are you going to find, how are you going to take this to market? Uh, or we're going to talk about the history of this subject. Furthermore, in every class, people will have to write reports, summaries, proposals, whatever. Uh, and in every class, they're going to have to stand up and give a presentation. Could be two minutes, could be five minutes, could be 20 minutes. And rather than asking the engineering faculty to sort of tutor and police and mentor and grade all this, this parallel set of faculty will do that. And so the idea is by integrating in every week throughout the whole time, small fraction of your total time, but truly integrated into the projects you're working on, will graduate people who are effective public speakers, good writers, good communicators, and people who understand the social context of what they're working on. That's the idea. That's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been a fun project. So I, last summer before last, I spent the entire summer there designing the curriculum and the staffing model. I've been working on it for four and a half years now, I guess. And uh, just last month, or well, October, we had the inauguration. Which very, very British. You know, everybody walking through the cobblestone streets in long robes and the town crier in his red velvet outfit ringing his bell and going to the thousand-year-old cathedral for the service and stuff like that. So it was fun. Henry, an excellent job on that interview. I hope we all <laughs> learned something from that. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. I think now as you're coming to the end of this episode, we should do a quick recap of everything we talked about during the season. Obviously, uh, we had a bit of a rough time starting up the show, but on our first episode, we talked about... <laughs> we talked about megastructures and megastructures. Fermi Paradox. It's a good episode. Yeah, it was another really great episode. We talked about Dyson Spheres. We talked about ring worlds and space elevators. Of course, the Fermi Paradox, whether or not life exists other places and whether or not it'll end here. Hmm. The answer is... That episode has five times as many views as the astronaut interview, and I don't know why. Dude, I don't know. Episode two, what do we talk about? Uh, the Space Force, black holes, and colonization. That was the one that we recorded in your dorm, right? That's right, we'd actually record that in my dorm room. Best episode. Best episode. Oh, we had some highlights from that episode, like... Uh, Someone asking from the Lifesuit audience whether or not they'd become Wolverine. A great moment. Classic. So you could, we could make a poster out of that. Yeah, we could. <laughs> Hypothetically. Of course, we also talked about in SpaceX versus NASA, Boeing, Elon Musk. Of Will course. Elon Musk become the Emperor of Mars? Yes. The answer is hopefully. And if we're like, we're going to talk real fast about like, how we record this, where we record it at. Sure. Uh, well, currently, we are all sitting in the main lounge of the 14th floor of John Jay at Columbia University. In the city of New York. In the city of New York, Manhattan. Good times. Yeah, 2019's about to be here. Henry, actually, we should talk about 2019. What do you think will happen next year, space-wise? 
Now, like, what space we know will happen. Like, what do you think we'll discover? Draft, Ooh, we'll discover? Wars. I have no idea what we're going to discover. What there's do you hope the, we'll um, discover, rather than? There's the Insight Lander is now... Not what's scheduled, Henry. What we think might happen. Well, the Insight Lander is on Mars. It's making discoveries. I'm mm. probably going to make more in 2019. That's going to be cool. Um, it's doing, actually, geology on Mars. Yeah, so. it's doing seismology, isn't mm -hmm. it? Yep, that's one of the things. I actually like to see whether or not we can figure out if there's plates at all on Mars. Mars That'd be plates, a huge thing to know about in the field of geology, yeah. is if plate tectonics applies to other planets. That'd be whack. I'm still hoping for curiosity to find some more minerals. As always. Uh, I know this guy named Bob Downs. He works at the University of Arizona. Not the one that's number one in innovation. And uh, he's the head mineralogist on the Curiosity program. And they actually, I got some pictures of something they saw there. They found a pocket of gypsum on the surface of Mars. Just shoot us. I'd love to see some Martian minerals come out. Other big hopes, of course, can we find like more asteroid data? What kind of ores or stuff are up there? SpaceX is going to keep doing its thing, presumably. Man, Elon Musk. I think we're going to have the first human flight on a SpaceX rocket That'd to the insane. ISS. I think we're doing that next year, hopefully. Do you know who's going to be on it yet? Yeah, we actually do. So one of the astronauts who came to Columbia, Sunny Williams, is going to be the one that goes up. Actually, no, I think she's going up on the Boeing one, but it's also next year. Um, uh, a member of Life Nine says, why send a Tesla to space? And the answer is because Elon Musk and everyone wants to do. Oh, right, yeah, that actually is a thing we talked about in episode four, the asteroids and space mining episode. We talked about how a satellite sent into space towards an asteroid or comet that was approaching the Earth, if done far in advance enough, could actually modify the path of the asteroid slash comet so much that it doesn't end up hitting the Earth at all. And you could, you know, if Elon wanted to save the Earth, he could use a Tesla to do it, which would be... Every savage. person on Earth would buy a Tesla. Be a good meme. <laughs> All right, so we moved on. Of course, we just we did episode four, which is we talked about asteroids, space mining. And the answer is, we need more of it. True. And especially just if we want to keep expanding the space, we're gonna to need to get resources from space, so you negate the cost of moving stuff up into space. Episode five was our interview with uh, Dr. Mike Mathamina, right? Uh, that was. Or is that episode six? That was episode six. The interview with Dr. David Kipping was episode five. It was all about exomoons, exoplanets. Uh, we talked about like real research that he and his team are doing on exomoon discovery. We talked about Hubble, James Webb. Uh, I don't think we talked about Elon, which is kind of sad. But uh, of course, after that, we talked about we talked to Dr. Mike Massimino here at Columbia. Mm -hmm. He's been to space several times, twice, right? Twice, yeah. Well, actually, maybe he's been three times. So he's repaired Hubble. Maybe he's repaired it multiple times. He's also been to the ISS, which is pretty insane. Big man. First person to tweet in space. What a legend. While you're here, you should go follow his Twitter account. His username yep. is Astro <coughs> underscore Mike. That's all the NASA astronauts. They have Astro. It's very wholesome. All right, episode seven. Too. Pure nonsense. I don't really know what the topic of this episode was. Dark stuff. Dark stuff. Dark stuff. But some of it isn't stuff but some of it most certainly is stuff. So in our production, uh, our first episode release was actually the third episode we ever f recorded, not filmed, uh, because 
The first two episodes we recorded, we lost. Rip in peace. Oh, it was it was depressing. We that, we finished the first recording, and it was probably about fifty minutes of recording. Way longer episodes than we do now, and we we hit we we hit stop recording, and then GarageBand just crashed. It would have been broken anyway because our like mic setup was completely wrong. Oh yeah, until we hired our audio guy, the the audio was just horrible. And then episode the second time we tried to record, we talked about the exact same thing. Actually, both these episodes we talked about space mining and asteroids. And then episode three, we said, "All right, we'll switch it up," and we did switch it up and talked about what was it? Space structures. Yeah, episode one space structures. Yep. And that one worked out, so we put it in. Definitely, really have been enjoying the live studio audience format that we have. They are also very enthusiastic about being here. Especially that one episode where we had like 10 people. That was nice. Oh yeah, but only one of them ever asked questions. True. Thank you, Micah. Micah, do you have any questions about anything we ever did? Um, what? Yeah, that's just about right. <laughs> <laughs> We've had some excellent posters up around campus mm -hmm. that feature quotes from the show in a, in a format that makes it look like it's an Instagram post from a, a popular local Instagram account called Overheard at Columbia. Yeah. yeah, Elise, our creative director, did make the images. Uh, for these ones, actually, one of the last Giannis members, Kate, had the idea for it. Yeah. I transferred it. It was executed perfectly. Um, Alright, ladies, it sounds like... That sounds like a wrap. Yeah. It's the end. It's like a wrap. Well, you know what, guys? If you made it to the end of the episode, thanks for joining us. If you made it to the end of all seven of our episodes this far, once again, thank you. You probably know me, you're Henry, personally. Probably. We're forced to watch it in person online. Thank you guys, by the way. If you go to Columbia and you listen to this, you see it on a poster, that'd be pretty insane, honestly. I don't think the posters did anything. Yeah, I don't think I'm sure so. they did. Maybe like one or two people. People looked at Maybe. it. Maybe. Yeah. They're kind of funny. They're funny, right? Yeah. The live studio audience says yes. That's a wrap. Yeah, if you're anyone else listening to this podcast, doesn't know me or Henry personally, holy moly, what are you doing? <laughs> Maybe send us an email or something. Yeah, send us an email. Tell us you liked the podcast. If you're on Spotify, leave us a good review. Uh, a like, like or whatever. Like it. Uh, if you're on Apple Podcasts, give us five stars. If you enjoyed it. If you didn't enjoy, um, well, don't review us at all then. Only five stars allowed. This is Rocket Science. It is the Columbia Space Initiative podcast featuring guest star Dr. David Helfen. Produced by Henry Manowski and David Tibbetts. Executive Producer, Milan Anand. Creative Director, Elise Palma. Audio is mixed by Micah Weiss. Edited by Kate Steiner. Alright, well that's all. Thanks for sticking around. Kate, I wish you the best of luck in recording this for the record. Please hire me, Elon. Yeah,